It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. All that said, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. Becoming a Next Real member gives you access to all sorts of additional and exclusive content. Plus, you're helping us keep the lights on. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership, where you can learn more about becoming a member, which costs a measly $5 a month, practically the same as one fancy coffee drink. And you get so much more. Every month, we record a bonus episode exclusively for members. Those episodes cover movies from whatever series we're covering at the moment, or add to previous series. Some movies we've covered that only members get to hear us discuss include The Blues Brothers, The Russia House, Naked Lunch, Independence Day, The Hot Rock, and Relic, the better one. Plus, members get to vote on what we're going to discuss for those episodes. We also record additional pre- and post-show content in regular episodes that only members get to hear. Like conversations about similarly themed movies. And answering listener questions from our live member chat. Speaking of our live member chat, we record almost all of our episodes in Discord, where members can chat right along with us live. Members get access to other members-only channels in our Discord community as well. On top of all that, members get all episodes a full week earlier than everyone else in a private Next Reel feed just for them that includes all the shows in the Next Reel family. The Next Reel, the film board, movies we like, sitting in the dark, and more new projects on the way. To top it all off, members don't have to listen to ads. We've already eliminated those annoying, dynamically inserted ads that, let's face it, we all hate it. We are listening to you. We love podcasting for a living, and those ads help to pay the bills. Now, we're counting on you, dear listener. We promise we aren't going back to those terrible, dynamically inserted ads that don't relate to us at all. All we ask is that you consider supporting the Next Real family of podcasts with a membership. Again, it's $5 per month or $55 per year. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership. Thenextreel.com slash membership. Get your access to early, ad-free episodes with bonus content, member bonus episodes, and access to member channels and live streams in Discord by signing up today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Showgirls is over. Want to go down to Spago, get something to eat? So, what are you going to Vegas for? You going to win? I'm going to dance. There's a spot open in the chorus line. I think you should try out. I got an audition! Okay, ladies, I got one interest here, and that's the show. I don't care whether you live or die. I want to see you dance, and I want to see you smile. From the creators of Basic Instinct, the last time they took you to the edge, this time they're taking you all the way. We take the cash, we cash the check, we show them what they want to see. It's not about fair, it's about power. You're a stripper, don't you get it? I'm a dancer. She's dazzling, she's exciting, and she's what Las Vegas is all about. 
showgirls. Leave your inhibitions at the door. This is a stripper movie that uh, some have described as Dickensian. It is a movie that it came out and people didn't like it. And then somehow people decided, eh, maybe we like it. And then people decided, oh, man, I think it's actually satire. And uh, now I don't know what to think because I don't know who those people are. And I am I come to you with an open mind on bent knee because I have a feeling you probably were more generous watching this movie than I was. Yeah, I was, actually. I found myself really enjoying it. And, you know, I, I would say when I saw it the first time, I didn't hate it. I thought it had its issues, had plenty of issues, and it was kind of over-the-top craziness. It wasn't like a favorite of mine, but I didn't just walk out going, that was the worst film, worst director, or worst performance. Like, you know, I didn't think it was like the bottom of the barrel. And revisiting it this time, I, I can really see that interpretation of this as everything is so big and so over-the-top crazy, and it definitely feels like what Verhoeven does. And, and this is perhaps even more fresh for me having, you know, when we watched RoboCop, I, I took it upon myself to kind of continue watching everything that Verhoeven had done in between leading up to this, just kind of getting a sense for his world, his storytelling, the way that he really kind of overdoes or, or, or pushes his actors to perhaps uh, deliver bigger, broader performances. And certainly that's the case with the, the sex scenes and the effects that he does in some of his films. And he really enjoys the satire. And Jonathan Rosenbaum ended up saying, Showgirls has to be one of the most vitriolic allegories about Hollywood and selling out ever made. Verhoeven may be the bravest and most assured satirist in Hollywood insofar as he succeeds in making big genre movies. No one knows whether to take seriously or not. That's part of it, because I think even now I watch this film and I can go, I can still see how this is a film that just feels like you can read it in many different ways. You can just see it as just a bad movie, but there's also some other interesting angles in here. And so, I don't know, I guess as a Verhoeven, you know, fan, maybe I'm just, I'm just trying to find the positive in it, but I did find it to be a very entertaining film. I laughed a lot throughout it. You know, I kind of had a, had a fun time with this one. What was it? Tell me, tell me what was, tell me what was funny. What were you laughing at? I didn't laugh a bit. I feel like I'm wired weird compared to other cineasts who are saying this movie is super satirical. I thought it was something that was trying something and didn't succeed. And it ended up being a bad movie. Uh, yeah. And I can I can see how that's entirely possible. I, I don't know. I guess I just found Nomi's character so over the top and, and like right out of the gate. She's like <laughs> she is is always at an 11, like when she's overreacting to somebody doing something, it's so big and so broad that she just made me laugh every time. Like, I just found her really funny this time. And I was just like laughing out loud at her. And I just, it was just kind of this big story. And just like this, this, the way that the rivalry built between her and Gina Gershon and uh, the just the different work relationships that she had. I don't know. Just I found it to be 
kind of funny in a lot of places. And usually it was Nomi that was making me laugh because just the performance was just so big. Okay. I I think the I'm having a um, Gina Davis challenge with this uh, Cutthroat Island challenge because I don't, I mean, I don't have a problem, I, I guess, with the idea of the character, but in every instance where she was overreacting, right, where she was responding so big, I didn't get the fact that she was playing it somehow satirically or comedically or I I felt like every opportunity I could armchair a performance in my head of somebody playing it differently that would have been better, more sort of soberly attuned to the serious issues that this movie is is trying to get across. Right. We talked in our pre-show about these stripper movies that that are commentary on, um, you know, power and gender roles. And this movie is all about that. Like there are a lot of those elements in here. And I felt like it is. It is such a confused film tonally from sequence to sequence, largely led by her performance that is so uncertain to the film that she's in or directed in such a way that is out of alignment with with the rest of the film that I felt I disconnected from it. I was never able to get lost in the film. Well, I you know, I you were just saying that you felt like her performance like the it was like part of the satire i don't or or it was she was trying to play it funny i don't think she was trying to play it funny i think perhaps verhoven uh you know and he actually says this uh, in an interview good or not good i was the one who asked her to exaggerate everything every move because that was the element of style that i thought would work for this movie and i guess like i think she was just performing it the way that he asked her to perform it and it just was really big i don't think she was intentionally trying to perform it in a way that was funny but i as i watched it you know this time i was kind of interpreting it like it's just everything was so big and and over the top that i was interpreting it as funny and i was kind of laughing at kind of the insanity of the way that she was reacting with everything and and i think uh, you know, some people have in recent reevaluations uh, looked at like how it is a almost satirizing how Hollywood often churns out these movies, these star is born sorts of stories or kind of like, you know, I mean, Ver, uh, not Verhoeven, Joe Esterhaus, who wrote the script, talks about how it was kind of a, a, a he used all about Eve the kind of the story of that with the older actress and the younger actress coming up as kind of a a template for this and like that sort of narrative. And, and you have this, uh, this terrible, (laughs) this angry, broken character at the center of this and and you're watching her make her ascension and she never gets better and it never becomes this uh, you know find find your place and heal your soul sort of story and i i don't know i guess that was how i was thinking there was this satire in it how i mean she does kind of have that come up and since she learns a lesson at the end and everything and then she leaves but i don't know i just i felt like it was exactly that same sort of story, but by doing it through being terrible and all these terrible things constantly happening. And it just seemed to be a, a dark look at how worlds like Vegas and uh, any place where you're performing, whether it's on a strip stage or a, um, a, a show in Vegas or even Hollywood itself, like so often the way that you get to where you're going is by pushing the person who's better down the stairs, you know? And I don't know. I just, I found 
that aspect of it to be interesting and and I don't know. For me, it was engaging. And and you know, I'm not I, I'm not disagreeing that those aspects are present. I'm just saying I didn't connect with the execution. Right? This is a movie with a story that is that is ostensibly interesting and could be you know funny. I didn't laugh. I didn't laugh the first time I saw the movie, uh, and watching it this time, I was surprised because a number of people in our community have turned a corner on this movie and say, oh, now I get it now. And I expected to go in. Maybe my standard was too high. Maybe I was like, well, <laughs> all of my friends like this movie now, so surely I'm going to like it now. And I, uh, once again, did not get it. It was worse than I expected going in. Every performance felt like a, a, a bad stage play to me. I did not connect with it. So I can easily write it off as not for me. It's, it's a movie that just was not for me. But the issues that you're bringing up Right. The fact that this is an industry about uh, women just going into this machine and being destroyed ultimately and that she, our central protagonist, aspires to that is uh, is a funny conceit. Right. It's a in the dark kind of black comedic satire universe. I think Berkeley's performance underachieved or was underdirected to that end or overdirected or directed in the wrong direction or overdirected <laughs> right right it was yeah. rerouted <laughs> well and you know i think that was definitely the interpretation at the time the film came out and i it has been reappraised by a lot of people but there are still a lot of people who just don't like it and i think just because we're hearing so much from the people who have been reappraising it, reevaluating it, doesn't mean that there are also the people who do the same thing. They just don't reappraise it because they're like, nope, it still sucks. You know, and, and I, I think, yeah, I, I, I think that that's a valid point. I think that there uh, is that angle to kind of see all of this in the story, you know, and I guess it's just, you know, what's going to work for you and what isn't. And Elizabeth Berkeley. Her, I mean, she had not done a whole lot of films, right? Yeah, I think this was just, this was her breakout from Saved by the Bell, right? Yeah, I was going to say, Saved by the Bell was her thing. I'm looking at right now, she was uh, in a film called Molly and Gina in 93. She was in White Wolves 2, Legends of the Wild in 95, along with this. And then she had she had a scene in Point Break that was actually deleted, and she had another film in '94 that was unreleased. So, yeah, not a whole lot. It was really her work in TV where she did those 75 episodes of Saved by the Bell. Yeah, that was really kind of what got her on the map. And after this movie, uh, you know, I mean, she's kept busy doing films here and there. She popped up in the first Wives Club and any given Sunday. And, you know, she's had little bits and pieces here and there. Hasn't done a film since 09, but has continued doing uh, TV uh, all the way up until fairly recently. And so, you know, she's she's kept busy. But this certainly was a point in her career that because of the flack she got, because the reevaluations hadn't started. I think she was the one who took the the brunt of all the criticism with this movie. Yeah, I think she did. And she doesn't she doesn't deserve it at, at all. Right. I mean, I, I think, you know, it, it all ends in Verhoeven and Verhoeven is a he's a, a mischievous director. Right. Like I I totally can get a sense that he was he was going for something that didn't connect with me and and directed it intentionally to give these feelings 
you know. But then I look at a movie like Starship Troopers, which I think is a parallel to this movie, a movie that came out and didn't connect with people right away until it was able to sort of stew in its own cultural satire. And a lot of people have come around on that movie. And I think, uh, you know, for me, um, deservedly so, right? It took for me. It took me going back and reading the book uh, again after I saw the movie to understand what Starship Troopers was going for. I have no such background for this. It just feels, you know, uh, out of out of sorts. And she's not alone. I mean, I think uh, Gina Gershon in this movie is too made uh, not camp enough in her sort of sadistic madam role to play this as, as satire to me. Although anytime I see Jean, Gina Gershon, I think, I, I, you know, she's, she's great. I, I do love her very much. The part is not great in this movie. And so you, but you didn't, you didn't like her in this one though. No, I mean, I didn't like the character in this one. I didn't, I, I didn't feel like it fit with the the rest of the movie. I, I feel like, okay, I'm going to give you, I'll give you one. Uh, I'll give you one, and that's Twin Peaks. He has no other name because he was exactly what I would have expected in this movie. <laughs> I love Gina Gershon in this movie. I think she really holds her own as the the main center attraction of this uh, dance show at this casino. Like I, I think she kind of owns that whole position as Crystal and uh, works really well. I enjoy her a lot in the film and Kyle MacLachlan as well. Like the two of them. Um, I think are great. You know, I, I mean, in general, I mean, even like going down the list of performers, I think they're all delivering. And like when you talk about like the camp and stuff like that, I just don't think that this film was necessarily like it's heightened, but I don't think it was I, I don't think anything in here is supposed to be delivered like camp. I just think that it's big. You yeah. were in the world of performers. And so I, I think that there are big performers and stuff, but I didn't feel like it was necessarily like camp and people were supposed to be performing it in campy ways. But I do think that they're delivering for me what feels like people working in this world. And it just, it I don't know, it all fit for me. Have you spent a lot of time in script strip clubs, Andy, personally? I have, I have not. Okay, that's right. I, I have not either. And I think that maybe makes it hard to judge some of what they're going for, because I, I will say on the performative aspects of it, I, I don't know if they're any good. Right. Like, I, I don't know if if like they look the Vegas stuff looked competent. It looked like any other Vegas show. Vegas is Vegas. But part of the movie is asking. I think it's asking us to sit in witness of a discussion of of talent in her sort of aspiration to move up the dancer food chain. And I could not for the life of me tell if she was better than anyone she was next to on stage, right? I couldn't tell if I was supposed to 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 root for her because she was an underdog, but completely, you know, super talented. I, I think that's uh, normal in movies. Like, I don't know any movie where you have that sort of thing where you can go, oh, yeah, she's totally better. Like, I think there are, are plenty of movies, shows, you know, Broadway shows, whatever, where we're seeing auditions behind the scenes and we're getting a sense of how people are performing and I can't tell. So I don't, I don't think that's any different than any of those other films. Like, you know, I mean, if somebody's great, unless they're really kind of designing these other performers to 
just be terrible so that the one person really stands out. But like when, you know, Michael Douglas is, is walking around the auditions in a chorus line and he's tapping people out because they're not good enough. I'm like, Oh, it seemed good to me. It's like, I, I just, I don't have that eye. So I can't tell. It's like whiplash. Like, are you leading or are you whatever? It's like, I don't know. He sounded like he was always on not, beat to me. I, not my tempo. Uh, not my yeah, tempo. I, I don't know. I can't, I can't tell. And so that's like, I, I think that's a hard, like, I don't judge whiplash because I'm like, well, I, I don't know. You know, I, that's, I, I think that's, I, I, I think that would be asking too much of audiences to expect them to be able to be as good as any of the people judging their performers. Well, maybe I, I do think that there are movies that, you know, we see it in sports movies. We see it where the underdog nature is due to some socioeconomic or cultural issue where we get to see their prowess as, in whatever sport they're performing in. And we get to know that they are best of the best, but something else is keeping them down. And this movie is sort of set up that way where she is, you know, we know that there is some other story for her where her, you know, she doesn't want to talk about her parents and she doesn't know her own social security number and there's mystery and the setup is she's she's trying to sort of overcome the adversity of her past that's what i go into this movie with and i feel like it doesn't necessarily live up to that for whatever reason it doesn't live up to that and then that third act sort of turn when she goes vengeance is like straight out of a modern Nicolas Cage movie. And I like that part. Like I like that scene. <laughs> that was awesome. It, it, it felt out of sorts with the rest of the movie, but it was, that was great. Well, I, I don't know if it felt out of sorts. I mean, it's just, it's all part. I mean, you're talking the point where she decides she's going to get revenge against crystal and, and pushes her down the stairs and kind of ascends to the, the head role in the show. Is that the point you're talking about or? No, when uh, her friend is uh, raped, really brutally raped during the party, and she goes back and beats the crap out of that guy, out of the cover model. Well, yes. I mean, that that is a very unpleasant part of the film. Definitely a part of the film that has fairly been judged as... Uh, unnecessary where Molly's gang rape is only there to fuel Nomi's change. Yes. And, you know, that's that's definitely a point that has been brought up. And it's one of those ugly scenes in the film. It's the only prominent uh, actor of color in the film, and she's the one who gets gang raped. And so there's a lot of stuff that is kind of gross about that whole sequence. And it's it's difficult. It, you know, story purposes, it does end up giving Nomi the change that she needed to kind of make her way out of this world. But it is a pretty gross thing. And to that end, though, I think that it's something that happens probably quite a lot, just the same as as Nomi getting basically pimped out by the the, you know, at that uh, car show or whatever it was, you know, it's like this is the sort of world that these people are unfortunately in and it's it's just kind of sad and and horrifying and and eye opening to uh, to you know in a big Hollywood film to kind of portray all of that. Yeah, I I think I think it's one of those sequences that is it's incredibly powerful. But unlike a movie like say The Accused, where the entire movie is built on that sort of uh, event, like that that horrific rape event, if you're going to put something that 
incredibly sort of viscerally violent on screen and then resolve it in like the next sequence, uh, that feels like an excuse and not of of substance. I also think in terms of shoehorning storylines in here that mean nothing, what happened to the big dance number? Like we have this dance number... (laughs) with the guy who I thought was going to be somebody, right? Like, he says, I wrote this dance number for you. And then the last time we see him is he's just accidentally in this club performing that number and nobody likes it. And it's over. Like, what was the purpose of that storyline even being in the movie? There is nothing. There is nothing to it. I, I, I you know, generously, most generously, it's to say, uh, to make me as an audience member question, are there good people in Hollywood? But ultimately, it was a a guy I liked, he's a total face, Glenn Plummer. He's a total face for Hollywood. Like, I've seen him in tons of movies, and uh, th- I was super excited to see him in this movie again and thinking, God, he keeps coming back in the first bit of the movie, and then he's just gone. That, I, I will agree, is a, uh, <laughs> a frustrating sequence because I was really hoping that it would build to something else. You know, we have yeah. him... He seems like he's going to be a good person. And then, of course, it turns out that he's just kind of screwing anybody, and you know, which he admits later. He's just like, I just can't control myself. But I do think you're a great dancer and all this sort of stuff. And you do want to see it turn into something. And by the time we finally get a chance to have him do his uh, performance, you know, he kind of acknowledges he may not actually have the talent to do it and so but you know what else it's like it's such a funny thing right it's characterized as this guy with the problem with women and yet he's the last sequence we get he's doing the right thing right he's doing the right thing he got this woman pregnant and so he's marrying her right i say right thing in heavy quotes in the universe of the movie he's doing the right thing and uh i think that's so funny it's like that sequence in that club is such a weird outlier in this movie to write him out of the film in a in a way that could have been really interesting like it could have been more fun yeah i guess it's just kind of that that mirror character of like you know somebody who's potentially got talent but then decides to drop it to do the right thing and in this case it's to stay with penny and you know it did feel a little unfulfilled i wish that there had been more there that could have worked a bit better to make that into something, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, Renna Riffle is Penny, the the woman that he's with. And there, here's something else that, that I was wondering if it was going to turn into something. We meet her when she comes to get a job. She's a new hire at uh, Robert Davey. Uh, he plays Al Torres at this little strip club, and Nomi's already working there. Penny gets a job there. She's the new dancer. They're going to kind of show the ropes. But the last thing he says, oh, and I expect a blowjob by the end of the night or whatever, by the end of the week. I can't remember. But it was uh, it's like, oh, OK, that's how that's how we run things here. And I was like, OK, is is this just there to just let us know how awful this world is and how it's run? Or is it going to be a plot point that's developed into something? And it never really became anything. So I guess I kind of was like, well, I guess it's just how the world is run. but. I was just wondering if we were going to be also following Penny as uh, a mirror character. And as we see Nomi starting to finally get out of all this, we see Penny kind of like 
bottoming out as it were, you know, and, and stuck in this world. So that's, it was another potential thing. I'm like, there, there's more there that they could have done to develop this. And, you know, finding her way out with, with James is kind of the light in the darkness, but it's just, it, it wasn't developed in the right way. Yeah, for sure. I, I again, like uh, you're right that that scene is kind of the end of both of their stories prematurely. Yeah, yeah. So talk about snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Like there's a movie in here for me. There is definitely a movie in here, and I, they didn't find it. Well, I, I think I that know. there's a lot more than you do, but it is it's <laughs> it's it's, a, it's an interesting one. You know, it was really funny watching this. I, I worked on this western back in. Oh, gosh, I guess it was 2010. I think it came out in 2011. And William Shockley was acting in it and um, one of the producers. And to see him in here as Andrew Carver, I the model, I don't know what he did. Is he just a model? Is he, or he's a musician, I guess. Yeah, he's and a he's musician. The, and he's the one who gang rapes. Uh, he and his bodyguards gang rape Molly. I was like, oh, I didn't want to think of him that way. <laughs> like, I, I didn't nope. remember that he was... <laughs> In this, and so that was like uh, kind of a, one of those things to, that was like ugh, not fun. Yeah. Interestingly, he was also the the western that we did. He did with uh, Ernie Hudson, who was in it, and he was also in our uh, in this series. So very funny that <laughs> two people have now been in the 1995 uh, Golden Raspberry Awards <laughs> series. <laughs> so funny. I uh, I did like seeing Alan uh, Rachens. I think it's Rachens. I don't know. I don't think I've ever said it out loud. Rachens, Rachens. I enjoy him. He was good in this. Tony Moss. He's a big. We were big Darman Greg fans back in the day, and L.A. Law fans back in the day, and so he's been kind of around the house for a long, long time. L.A. Law was really where people would likely know him. Yeah, from. like that's almost his career. Is <laughs> that? Yeah, I think I think that's uh, I think that's accurate. Okay, so one of the things that Verhoeven really wanted to do with this was to kind of like uh, amplify just like that neon. I mean, it's a lot of kind of beauty and like that that Las Vegas kind of glow throughout the film, but it also kind of enhances kind of the just the kind of the slick, sleazy underbelly feel to it all. Uh, Jost Vacano was the cinematographer. I mean, what did you think of Jost and and what we what he brought here? And who also I can't remember if we talked about it much, but he also worked on RoboCop, Total Recall, and Starship Troopers and Hollow Man. I have no complaints about the camera, really. I think the, he captured a a Vegas that feels familiar as Vegas to me, right? Uh, there are some shots in here that are poster artwork, right? I mean, just awesome, uh, dramatic landscape shots of Vegas. There's an over-the-shoulder shot of her uh, sitting on the rooftop of, I think, a parking garage next to the Flamingo, and it's um, uh, it's just lovely with the, the lights coming up, the the floor on the front, like the facade uh, facades are captured, uh, I think, really beautifully. I like the backstaginess of it, right? There's so much of it that feels like, oh, we get to jump around and see the tight quarters and things. It didn't feel like necessarily they were breaking Making new ground over what you know over backstages that we've seen before, but I liked this one. I think he's you know it's it, it was fun to see all of the stuff that goes on in the background. I think we have a couple of of interesting sequences, like cultural sequences, where you have you know the all the the women are getting their makeup on and getting ready for the show, and their kids are wandering around in the backstage because where do they 
send their kids when they can't afford the kid send their kids somewhere or the dad's not around or whatever like it pokes at some of those those questions about the industry that i think are are good and it was captured well yeah i i was i thought that was pretty interesting and and it really you know shows you that backstage dynamic between these people because there was the, the woman who had the the kid was also pretty antagonistic with one of the other dancers who was always yelling at her and like you know you took my stuff or where's my thing or whatever and that also is the woman who's just like get your goddamn kid out of here like who couldn't handle having a kid wandering around backstage like not because they didn't like the kids necessarily but because like that kid was just being annoying and complaining all the time there was a lot of of that stuff. And in, in many respects, the stuff that doesn't involve our principal characters, right? The stuff that involves the the way the other women on the, you know, on, on the cast interact with one another was some of the more interesting stuff for me. Like the, the act of putting on the production, the act of staging and casting and auditioning, like all of that stuff, I, I think I can I can get behind. Well, I, I always enjoy that sort of stuff, you know, getting a, a handle on the different people um, who are the choreographers or the costumers is they're kind of like talking about things and like, you're a little late, get it straight next time. And I love that scene where the guy uh, comes in and he's like, well, you're getting there. You'll, you, you know, a little more work, you'll be able to do it. She's like, well, how much, how long do I have? When do I finally come on? He's like, oh, tonight, tonight. you're coming out tonight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you know, that realization, like, oh crap, I have to pick this up very quickly. We do not mess around. Yeah, right. This this is a nightly show. <laughs> right, right. That's, uh, you know, there's so much of the business stuff that I think doesn't um, uh, get that, that, you know, where everybody's just sort of in the way of each other that I think is really, you know, that that's where the movie is interesting. It's the mechanics of the, the background of how they they make these things and transitioning from the you know, the nature of the sort of stereotypical strip club to the showgirl. Like he kept saying, oh, my God, you're you want to be a showgirl, right? Like they use I think Robert Davi says that like you're leaving to be a showgirl. Uh, and, and I think that like the difference between a stripper and a showgirl is an area that I think is interesting and could have been plumbed even more in in this movie that what she was really doing was just being a stripper on a bigger stage. That is the interesting cultural commentary. And when Gina Gershon says, you know, we're all just whores, something like that, like we they give us money and we show them what they want to see. Right. She has that exchange. Yeah. And uh, Elizabeth Berkeley is saying, no, we're not. No, we're not. I'm not. I'm you know, she she's a showgirl. She says, yes, you are. You, you're we're all whores. The fact that, you know, I think the movie is poking at that so gently. Right. It feels like I don't know. It just feels like there there is a there's a bigger story to be told in that dark space, and the movie kind of exists on top of it, and then changes tone so dramatically when I expect it to answer some of those questions, and becomes that vengeance story for Molly to get us moving again. That I think I struggle, but I I like that I like that angle. I like that angle of exploration. Like, what is really the difference between what you wear to what you when you attend as an audience member? Uh, a strip club versus a showgirl or how many dollar bills you have in your pocket versus, a, you know, a big, big stage show on the strip, um, which I think is interesting. Yeah, I, I think there's 
a lot of interesting comparisons that we have there, like how Robert Davi runs his strip club and the way that he talks to his girls is pretty crass. But when you're seeing, uh, again, Alan Ratchens, Rachens, as he's doing the same thing, he's also pretty crass, you know, wanting to put ice on her nipples and, and everything to, you know, to all of this sort of these little um, tips and everything that they're uh, kind of saying to help them perform better it leads to the same thing. They're all going out there on stage to take their clothes off in front of crowd. And that is a really interesting element that we have throughout this. And yes, it's, there's a, a higher um, clientele, I guess you could just say in the world of performing on this big stage with all the lights and the glitter and the glamor and just like how fantastic, like production design they have. But at the end of the day, it's, it leads to a lot of the same thing. And, you know, I suppose you could argue that there is this portrayal of what you do in the world of the strip club. Like when you go, you have, you know, part of the job, they expect you to go into the back and do lap dances for people. And that becomes, you know, plot point a few times in the story with the lap dances. But then you have uh, you don't really have that same comparison when it comes to the life on as a showgirl. But you do have these opportunities, like when you go to the trade show, and I said it was a car show, but it was it was a boat trade show that yeah, they go, show. where it's basically there for prostitution. Like they're basically there so that they go out with these high profile individuals and are expected to have sex with them, and that becomes almost to a certain extent worse than what you are expected to do at the strip clubs, you know? And, uh, you know, I, I can't remember if it was, maybe it was, I can't remember if it was Al or maybe it was Henrietta Bazoom, you know, the, the one with the, war, the crazy wardrobe. She was a hoot. She was very, very funny. But, or one of them may have said something about like, you know, there's honesty in what we do here or something like that. You know, I can't remember. but that vibe of it is what it is here and you do lap dances it i mean he also did say you know i expect blowjobs and stuff like that and so there is an expectation that comes with that that's you know it's it's a little more kind of uh you know the pimp relationship that he has with his girls that you don't necessarily like we never saw it's not like when she and zach ended up together it wasn't like he was forcing her into a relationship or a sexual relationship or anything like that. And it's not, I don't, you know, Tony never said anything to her in that vein either, but they did kind of expect them to make these goodwill appearances where they would be prostitutes. I, I can't believe I'm coming to the defense of the narrative of this film, but I think that is a fantastic uh, comparison between Robert Davi, who is the most, probably the most honest of anybody in the movie, right? He just calls it like it is. This is the way the business run. He's he's trash and and a uh, hateful human being. And Kyle MacLachlan, who is also trash and a hateful human being, but doesn't say it ever to the, the women themselves. And there is that sequence where she comes to him. Uh, Nomi comes to Zach and says, hey, this happened and I need you to take care of it. And he says, don't you ever do it again. He calls what's his name in uh, uh, Phil in and says, don't you ever do it again. You're a terrible person. And then immediately, you know, once she's gone, picks up the phone and says, yeah, 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 I know we're fine. Just don't, you know, like keep doing what you're doing. Just, you know, don't use her anymore. Right. Right. right, right. Like that's that's the kind of like duplicitousness that you get with more money and the bigger show that she is aspiring to. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, and I shouldn't have been coming to Zach's defense really, because he's also the person <laughs> at the end who, 
who digs into her dirt and uncovers her backstory and then essentially blackmails her into performing or or I'm going to tell everybody uh, what happened. And that's what leads her to kind of take her to to uh, take the, uh, you know, her own vengeance upon Andrew Carver, as opposed to getting the police involved. And that was kind of that whole thing. But I mean, yeah, he is a much worse type of person. And, uh, you know, whether it's money puts him into a position of power and he's using and abusing it as he sees fit or what, you know, it's it's hard to say. But, yeah, it, it's it's an interesting thing because Robert Davi never actually seems that great or that nice when he's when she's working there but it it clearly was a i guess you could say a more positive relationship because like he and mama bazoom come to visit they come to see her uh nomi's show yeah, they come to, the show. to talk with her and everything they're proud of her like she's she's made it out of the nest and she's on her own like it's it's a weirdly very parental moment that we have with the two of them as they're you know happy for her and, and seeing her succeed yeah it's it there's a lot of interesting things that um it's kind of capturing with with some of those elements i think that's the that's the trick everybody in this movie except yeah i mean everybody in this movie is is generally a terrible person <laughs> it's just all about degrees yeah well and that again i just think that they're they were making a movie just about bad people and like this 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 terrible uh terrible world and stuff it's i don't know it's it's interesting yeah which is fine. I'm in favor of that. <laughs> I don't mind that. The music was by Dave Stewart uh, of the Eurythmics. Um, Verhoeven asked him to do it and also write all the music for the, the big shows. And And what he actually said is the idea was to make the same loud, sleazy, bad music that you hear in those Vegas shows, because that's how it actually is. Uh, what do you think? Do, do you feel like they pulled it off OK with all of that? Yeah. I actually I <laughs> I definitely liked the the soundtrack, you know. I thought the um I I thought the songs were great. Of course I get really excited when Prince comes on and and I think there was good use of <laughs> good use of Prince. Yeah. Twice. Uh that's telling. But yeah, in general, uh, I did I did like the music. I like the sort of thumping bass that they create for the the environment of the clubs and so yeah, it it works for me. And also, what, and this goes to another angle that Verhoeven uh, had talked about is the idea that this is his version of kind of like a, one of those um, early MGM musicals. Like it was a big show about all of these dancers doing all of these great performances and kind of life behind the scenes and everything. And and you see all of that with the Busby Berkeley sorts of things. And, and the way that I, I found what was interesting in this film is over the course of all the different dance performances that we see, we really see uh, like a variety. Like we see like the primordial things with like the lava explosions and all of that. You've got the bikers and everything. You've got the uh, sparkling goddesses and sorts of things. Like I, I found that they were doing a lot of shows in a really interesting way that, that ended up feeling like they, it was almost like Verhoeven's interpretation of a lot of those uh, points through kind of the Hollywood musical history. Uh, yeah, I did not think about that. I did not make that connection until you said it. I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I think the uh, the idea of exploring pop culture history through strip striptease bits is <laughs> I, I, it's kind of adorable. <laughs> it might be the cutest thing about this movie. <laughs> well, leave it to Verhoeven to do it right. I mean, it yeah, just right. it fits. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I mean, we've talked as in terms of talking about Verhoeven. I'm, I, I, we've talked about him, you know, a bunch. I, I think lately, and I, I think he's a he's the more we watch in short order, the more I like what he's trying to do, whether or not it it succeeds. Right? He's an interesting, provocative director who's pushing some kind of fun buttons. I was surprised this one didn't didn't land with me. I I, I wanted it to. Where do you stand on Joe Esterhaus? You know, he wrote this, um, he wrote Basic Instinct before with Paul Verhoeven uh, at the time becoming the highest paid screenwriter. Yeah, he started his career in the late 70s with Fist, a uh, Stallone movie, and then, of course, Flashdance, did some rewrites on Blue Thunder, had Jagged Edge, Big Shots, Hearts of Fire, Betrayed, Checking Out, Music Box, then Basic Instinct, Nowhere to Run and Sliver, another erotic thriller that he did with Sharon Stone. Uh, after Showgirls, he did Jade. He did One Night Stand, Telling Lies in America. And then, of course, the notorious and Alan Smithy film, Burn Hollywood Burn in 1997, which he wrote Arthur Hiller directed. And because he felt the movie was so bad, he actually took his name off. And as if it was faded, an Alan Smithy film, Burn Hollywood Burn, Burn actually became an Alan Smithy film, which I could not get enough of at the time it came out. I just thought that was hilarious. That's kind of Esther House. What is Joe Esther House working through in his movies, right? Like, it feels like he's got some demons that he's trying to exercise all the way from Flashdance, right? Like, I don't know. I mean, I feel like he's got he's got some issues that he's trying to trying to work through in terms of sex, nudity, violence in film, gender issues in film. Like, he really sort of has the corner of that particular cultural space and what i mean where do where do you stand on esther house do you do you generally like the scripts that he turned out through the you know 80s 90s well i mean you say that and i i look at that list of films and i haven't seen a lot of them and especially like once he started really hitting his stride with basic instinct I haven't seen a lot of the the things that he's done since then. I think the only other film of his that I've seen after Basic Instinct was was Showgirls, was this. And so, like, I didn't see Jade. I didn't see Sliver. Those were two films that, you know, I, I saw the trailers. And I'm like, oh, they don't look great. Uh, I just mean the ones after Basic Instinct. Like, I, I just hadn't seen um, much. And so... I mean, I did see Jagged Edge. That was one that I rented and I enjoyed. Uh, I, I think that he is definitely, clearly seems like he is dealing with some issues and, and kind of sorting through stuff. But I don't know. I, I Or he's brilliant, right? Yeah, I, I find him to be... he was just brilliant. Like, I, I think he's he could be brilliant. He could be the guy who wrote his first movie that featured um, sex and nudity and and, and uh, really established a career as a result of that first success and like propelled that career by specializing in these lurid, more sensational stories with more graphic nudity or sexuality. And in an era when the audience was hungry for erotic thrillers, right? Like that could just be straight up business, right? Maybe he's not, <laughs> maybe he's not doing, uh, uh, maybe he's just smart. Maybe he's just smart and he has no issues at all. And he just likes to sleep in a bed full of soft bunnies, <laughs> which is its own sort of freak action. I don't want to yuck anybody's yum. Is that a thing we can still say? I don't think so. 
<laughs> yeah, definitely an interesting life and an interesting story. I don't, I don't want to go really too deep into his story, but it was a lot of there was a lot of stuff that had gone on when he was young, and it just it does make me wonder if it just uh, left him in a place where he was like really contemplating a lot of these sorts of things. And, and, you know, and again, it also found it fairly lucrative and it's hard to argue yeah. that, you know, Flashdance, the success of that movie and what he was doing there, it was a perfect starting place to lead to where he ended up with basic instinct and sliver and this and Jade. Like it, it's just, it, it seems like a you know all the right stepping stones he needed to get to this place, and then perhaps this was kind of that that um, zenith where he'd gotten to a point where it was like so much that it just it everything kind of started falling in on itself afterwards. You know, yeah. Well, and he had that. Uh, apparently, he wrote the wrote a memoir about his experience after uh, having throat cancer and just the memoir apparently unleashed on his stories of the Hollywood. And I, I have not read it, but I just in the act of going through his movies, I'm really curious because it does feel like some of those stories weave together a tapestry of, of what makes a Joe Esterhouse movie. Yeah. Yeah. He's an interesting person for sure. This, uh, was a film that was kind of unprecedented because this film was rated NC NC seventeen. This was this new rating that was created in the was it the late eighties? I think that turned into a thing that like nobody wanted because it was like basically saying that you're you're putting what they felt like porn into the movie theaters. Uh, yeah, September nineteen ninety is with the film Henry and June was the first NC seventeen film released and after blockbuster really is the one that killed it because blockbuster said we're not going to carry any nc-17 films a lot of filmmakers have said we need this rating we need a rating that allows for films that are that really you shouldn't be bringing a kid to ever i remember you know at some point like spike lee and martin scorsese i think had come out and said films like a like a war film like uh, Saving Private Ryan has such graphic, horrific war scenes that it should be NC-17 because you shouldn't be bringing kids who are under 17 to a film like that. And this is, again, going to this whole issue of, of why our rating system is broken. You know, this was, uh, you know, I, I found to be an interesting challenge by Verhoeven that after he had the struggles that he did with uh, with what he had to cut and stuff with some of his previous films, he really pushed the studio to allow him to film a movie that was NC-17. And, and uh, he ended up, because it was this, the studio was super concerned about all of this. He didn't want to have to make any cuts. And so he wanted to release an NC-17 film. He had to defer 70% of his, uh, of his paycheck uh, depending on if the film actually made a profit because they just didn't trust that it wasn't going to end up getting shut out right away. And so that those elements are, and, and blockbuster not showing it. That's why the NC 17 rating wasn't a success. And it's just, it's disappointing because it became such like <laughs> going back to our last film, it became this scarlet letter that these films had to carry around <laughs> and, you know, it was a burden and, you know, and, and I know he, there was a, uh, a cut of this film that was a little more R rated for some places that refused to play it period. 
And uh, I think they had to do that for some TV places as well to show it. And then I think he ended up releasing an, an unrated cut anyway that was just a, f- just a tiny bit longer than the NC-17. And so, um, which is what I watched. And, and so, I don't know, it's just in the scope of adult storytelling, it is one of those things that is frustrating that filmmakers have to go through such hoops in order to get a story told. Yeah, and I, you know, I'm looking at the list of NC-17 films, rated NC-17, and it just, this list highlights how we are still (laughs) uptight Puritans, and we're able to look at absolute, you know, uh, horrors, but once there's sex involved, uh, that becomes an entirely different conversation. Um, I think what's interesting about this movie in particular, if you strip away any strip away do you hear what i did there any of my concerns over the quality of the film and my experience with it not for me one of the things it does really well is sanitize nudity over the course of two plus hours it's like by the end uh, there is nothing titillating about the experience of so much nudity it just becomes like uh, you feel like you're just another member of the cast backstage, right? There's nothing in the presentation that is overtly sexualized in a way that demands an NC-17 rating. There are, and and so I think that's one of the interesting sort of tricks that Verhoeven is able to pull. That you know, if there's just enough of it, that there's there's no more imagination at work here. We're going to just move beyond the anything that could be categorized as titillating and see if we can get you with the story. I think that's interesting. Well, I, and I'm glad you brought that point out because that was a really interesting element of this film because it just never seemed sexy. And I found that to be like, it, it didn't even start sexy. Like, you know, no. it just kind of always, it, it, it always ended up feeling kind of like, just the sleazy world of strippers. And it just never has that feel of being sexy. And I was actually interested to see, because I I couldn't remember this film completely, but I was interested to see, is there a point in this film where they actually allow a sexy sex scene to actually happen and it felt totally different than all of the rest of the film? They didn't. And, you know, to the point of things that they perhaps could have made this film better like that could have actually been an interesting moment in this film to actually have like a genuine sex scene that just was was romantic and and sexy and it just suddenly yeah. it's like oh this is this is why that's different you know and and we didn't get that which was fine but it would have been an interesting comparison yeah um the framing mechanism from the very beginning you mentioned oh, yes. and it got me thinking about the truck the the blue pickup and the the guy who stole her suitcase what did you think about using that as a framing mechanism for this film i actually it was funny i forgot what happened and i'm like okay so we're starting with a nice-ish guy and i wonder where we're gonna go and like, oh no he wasn't a nice guy he was a thief and i'm like okay so that sets us up for our world yeah, of people who seem nice and really aren't. And I thought that was actually a really clever way to to st- set things up and to give us a sense of like, we're stepping into this world where nobody is trustworthy. Everybody has ulterior motives, and they're all genuinely bad. And by the time we get to the end, what I liked about that is it gave us a sense of her newfound power and understanding of the world that she had was very naive about before, and now she understands. And was able to navigate. And so for me, having the 
the framing mechanism uh, of this where we kind of come full circle by the time we get to the end. I actually really enjoyed. I liked that quite a bit with this film. Yeah, I, you know, I think it, it kind of, it, that is a piece that sort of works for me too. The fact that, um, you know, it becomes the, it, it's effectively opening the book on a nightmare fairy tale, right? <laughs> like that's what we get at the beginning. Welcome to Las Vegas. Well, a uh, lot of interesting things going on in this film, uh, to talk about for sure. Um, but I think that's about it. So we'll be right back. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Rasberg, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. If I can say there's one thing I really hoped that I would get out of this movie, it's another movie just like it. Tell me all about the sequels. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Verhoeven had been planning a sequel taking place in uh, Hollywood, where Nomi is now taking on Hollywood. After this film initially didn't do very well at the box office, those plans were scrapped. However, we already talked about Renna Riffle playing the character Penny. She ended up uh, writing, producing, editing, and directing the sequel called Showgirls 2, Pennies from Heaven, and it's Penny apostrophe S from Heaven. It is uh, an erotic drama that she made, uh, released in 2011, as her own sequel to it. Uh, there was a Kickstarter that uh, got it going and everything. I'm not, I didn't actually look up uh, what, how it was received, but uh, let me see. Showgirls 2, Pennies from Heaven, IMDb. 1.8. So 
Okay. Uh, I don't know. Is that is that past the point where it's so bad it's still entertaining, or where are we hitting at a one point eight? <laughs> oh dear. Well, Andy, I am currently I'm currently watching the trailer for Pennies from Heaven on mute as we talk about it, and I can tell you with great confidence it might actually come around. It might actually have already come <laughs> around the bend. We might need to watch this movie. I like that we've got the 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 person who picks. Uh, the, we were just talking about the framing <laughs> device. He's in it. You've got Glenn Plummer back. Yeah. I really wonder what a good old Rena Riffle did to that one. It does not look like a movie we're ever going to do on this show, no. but it exists, <laughs> and there is dancing, and oh my gosh. This was a movie made on a no budget. Yes, 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 yes. I, I think that Rena just really wanted to kind of continue that story and uh, and keep it going. So, well, uh, movies are hard. Movies, movies are hard. There yep. also was an off off Broadway parody of Showgirls called Showgirls the Musical. Uh, started in 2013. It was so popular and received so well that it actually moved up to off Broadway. And continued for uh, quite a while. Renna Riffle actually reprised her role for a month in it. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know uh, if it still is something that is potentially running, but it is something that was very, very popular. It's also a film, we talked about all the, the reevaluation and everything. There was a documentary made uh, that uh, outside, I mean, there was plenty of behind the scenes and, and things like that, but there was an actual documentary made in 2019 called You Don't Know Me that detailed kind of the history of this film. Uh, Jeffrey McHale directed it, has a lot of interviews with uh, cast and crew. It was received very well, and uh, I I wasn't able to watch it before our conversation, but it's certainly something that has piqued my curiosity. Me too. And I've heard that is a thing from amongst our circles that turned a lot of people around on this movie. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, it's out there. How to do at award season. That is, after all, why we're here. Indeed. 10 wins, 10 other nominations. It won Worst Film at the Dallas-Fort Worth Film Critics Association Awards. Over at the Stinkers Bad Movie Awards, it won Best Picture. Kyle MacLachlan was nominated for Worst Actor but lost to Sylvester Stallone for Assassins and Judge Dredd. And Elizabeth Berkley was nominated for Worst Actress but lost to Julia Sweeney in It's Pat, the movie. And then, of course, The Razzies. Holy cow. Uh, it lost Worst Remake or Sequel to The Scarlet Letter, which we've talked about. It won Worst Original Song, Walk Into the Wind. It also won uh, Worst New Star for Elizabeth Berkley. Worst screenplay at one, worst director at one, Verhoeven was there to accept it, and he said in his acceptance speech, he was the first person to apparently do so, he said, I had the worst thing happen to me today. I got seven awards for being the worst, and it was more fun than reading the reviews in September. <laughs> <laughs> is that a class act response? Like, is that, do we, is that a, a, the people who show up to the Razzies and accept the awards in person? That's classy, right? To show up and accept your award or, yeah. or just, yeah. You know, yeah. I suppose, uh, again, we've talked about a little bit about how the Razzies sometimes just seems like, uh, you know, angry nerds, you know, making fun of the things that they think are bad. Yeah. You know, and I, I suppose there's that level. So to it's, it. it's sort of a Trump, right? To show up, you're playing a Trump card to the angry nerds. I suppose it can be. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. It also won Worst Screen Couple for any combination of two people or body parts. <laughs> Lynn Tucci, uh, Madame Bazoom, was nominated for Worst Supporting Actress but lost to Madonna in Four Rooms. Same thing with Gina Gershon, who lost Worst Supporting Actress to Madonna in Four Rooms. Uh, both Alan Rachins and Robert Davey lost Worst Supporting Actor to Des Hopper in Waterworld. Uh, Berkeley, not only did she win Worst New Star, she also won Worst Actress. Kyle MacLachlan was nominated for Worst Actor, but lost to Polly Shore, Shore in Jury Duty. And, of course, it won Worst Picture. Then, in 2000, it won Worst Picture of the Decade, beating an Alan Smithy film, Burn, Hollywood, Burn. Hudson <laughs> Hawk, my apologies to you there, Pete. Uh, I know. Striptease and The Postman. Which uh, apparently also, I love. Which apparently you love, yes. Elizabeth Berkley lost Worst Actress of the Century in the 2000 uh, Razzies to Madonna. She also lost Worst New Star of the Decade in 2000 to Polly Shore. And then in 2005, it was nominated for Worst Drama of Our First 25 Years, but lost to Battlefield Earth, which also beat Mommy Dearest, Swept Away, and The Lonely Lady, which is another film this film has often been compared to. I haven't seen it, have you? It's a Pia Zadora film about a young woman who comes to Hollywood to in search of becoming a screenwriter, I think, is the story. And uh, Peter Sasty directed it based on Harold Robbins' novel. Um, it's believed to have been based on memoirs of Jacqueline Suzanne. But yeah, Pia Zadora is in it. From the sensual world of Harold Robbins comes the story of a woman's struggle for fame in Hollywood. And apparently it's just all about how it all, everything that she wanted to do is all just about, you know, um, people making her have sex to get anywhere. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds familiar. <laughs> how did it do at the box office? Well, for his erotic thriller, Verhoeven had a budget of $45 million, or $93.6 million in today's dollars. The movie opened as the only wide-release NC-17 film on September 22, 1995, opposite Seven, Empire Records, Canadian Bacon, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation. It landed in the number two spot and actually stayed in the top ten for three weeks. In the end, even with the NC-17 noose around its neck, the film went on to earn $20.3 million domestically and $17.4 million internationally for a total gross of $78.5 million in today's dollars. Even with an adjusted loss per finished minute of $115,000, Verhoeven's film has gained a strong cult status, more money, and a lot more respect over the years. Do you have an idea of how much more money? What does cult status get a movie like this? This is a film that ended up having so many additional screenings over the years like it became like this this cult thing there were like in the gay communities there were a lot of midnight uh, movie screenings of this that would go on i should say in the lgbtq communities uh, it's like the same thing like with rocky horror i don't know how that actually all those screenings of rocky horror over the years how much that actually how much of that goes to them other than just yeah, the, the right. rental of the thing but it did say that with all of those sorts of screen screenings, home video rentals generated more than $100 million, and it actually ended up making Showgirls one of MGM's top 20 all-time bestsellers. Wow. Well. I, I guess enough. Enough to enough. Uh, not 
to end up with, you know, if I could have gotten all that numbers with all of that figured out, it really ends up with an adjusted profit per finished minute. We need uh, probably a second spreadsheet. I'm sure this means it needs a a nested spreadsheet. (laughs) Are you? (laughs) Uh, Okay. Then that's, I'm glad we, I'm glad we talked about it. And this is, (laughs) this is, this is quite a series. Well, I'm, I, we this have. will be this will be interesting to talk about next week when we close the series out. Just kind of about okay, in the scope of what the Razzies are asking or or, or claiming as the worst directed films, the worst films, all those different things. But we're specifically talking about worst directed films. You know, I, it'll be interesting to to look at that film and say, was this the worst directed film of these five that were nominated? You know, yeah. I honestly don't know what the answer to that question is. <laughs> uh, we'll talk about it uh, next time, I guess. So we'll be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie closing out the series, Kevin Reynolds' Waterworld. The future. The polar ice caps have melted. And the earth lies beneath a watery grave. Those who survived have adapted to a new world. What did you see out there in the 15 lunars? Such as? An end? An end to all this water? You're asking the wrong person. Pure dirt. So what's the word? We trading or not? And the human dream is the search for a mythical place called dry land. It doesn't exist! How can you be sure? Because I've sailed farther than most have dreamed. I've never seen it. This place, this whole way of living, it's ending. Straight line leading directly. Directly to dry land. Dry land is not just our destination, but it is our destiny! Universal Pictures presents... A world unlike any you have ever seen. Kevin Costner, Dennis Hopper, Gene Triplehorn. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. 
The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links supports the show. In Season 13, we explored various awards categories and the films nominated in them. We wrapped up our 1940 Best Picture series with adaptations of Mice and Men from John Steinbeck and Wuthering Heights from Emily Bronte's novel, not to mention the play Dark Victory by George Brewer Jr. and Bertram Block. The 1947 Academy Award adapted screenplay series featured Anna and the King of Siam based on Margaret Langdon's book, plus The Best Years of Our Lives, Brief Encounter, and The Killers. The 1952 cinematography nominees included Death of a Salesman and a Streetcar Named Desire, A Place in the Sun, based on both a play and a book, and Strangers on a Train, based on Patricia Highsmith's first novel. So many great movies based on books and plays, like Beckett, The Pumpkin Eater, A Boy and His Dog, Rollerball, The Princess Bride, Congo, The Scarlet Letter, Jackie Brown, The Deep End, The Gray, The Woman in Black, and Top Gun Maverick, which I'm very much looking forward to revisiting. Get the source books at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read or reread from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today. Uh, Letterboxd, Andy. Uh, what are you going to do for Letterboxd? I... I would have expected that you would have been done with me, but now I'm starting to think maybe this is a uh, three star and a heart with quibbles. This is even a bit higher than that. I had, <gasps> I had a lot of fun. Three and a half <laughs> oh and a heart. God. That's right. I, I enjoyed this film. I, I had a great time. I laughed along with it. I enjoyed the craziness of this world that Verhoeven was delivering. Who knows? After this, I might actually like Hollow Man. I don't know <laughs> what's happening to me and my Verhoeven things. I but, literally you know. kicked over furniture <laughs> accidentally when you said that out loud. I cannot believe it. Oh, you guys. Okay. Uh, I'm not there. I am I did not enjoy my time with this movie. It was a slog, and uh, I am giving it a one star, no heart. It's just, I'm not going to come back to it again. I don't need to. Uh, and that messes up our average. That is one of, one of the bigger splits that we've had, I think. Yeah, this this average is out to two and a quarter. So over on our Letterboxd account, we'll bump it up to two and a half and a heart. So that's where it's going to sit. <laughs> Unbelievable. I know. Well, don't forget, you can find The Next Reel on Letterboxd at The Next Reel. You can find me at Soda Creek Film. And you can find Pete at Pete Wright. So what did you think about Showgirls? We definitely would love to hear your thoughts on this one. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we will be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterbox give it, Andy. As Letterbox always doeth. I went with with most activity. So people who thought that these reviews, them who were rating the reviews. And I actually have a whole bunch of one-liners, and I'm going to share them all at once. Can I do that? Yeah, I'll do the same. I, uh, <laughs> okay. Although maybe in the same one, so we'll see. One, the, I'm going to open with a four-star to completely neuter my opinion uh, before I even start. Four-star from Stevie. Straight people are not allowed to have an opinion on this. So, okay. Got it. Five-star. Versace. Four-and-a-half-star. Quote, guys, we got to toss a monkey scene in here somewhere. <laughs> And a five star from Julius. The people who think this is dumb are the same people who think Inception is smart. 
Ouch. Ouch. Uh, okay, what do you got? Good stuff. I've got a five-star by Paul Douglas Reese, who says, My fiancé was expecting a movie about a stripper with one whole leg as a body. The poster misled him, and he was severely disappointed. <laughs> That's a very funny bit because the poster, the <laughs> yeah, that's just like, uh, yeah, very funny. I would love to that's see so that good. with just, just a long leg with Elizabeth Berkeley's <laughs> head on top. The, the other disappointing thing is that at no point was there a reveal like this. I feel like the poster is so, and I'll say this five star poster work, like it is a great poster, like really subtle severe the implication of curtains that are sort of being parted as as she walks out on stage one-legged and all and it never there's never anything as dramatic or cool as the poster yeah i I, i'm gonna end it on this one four and a half by leticia fernandez the imdb trivia page for this movie says that the only time the actresses felt uncomfortable was during some of the monkey scenes because they kept staring at their boobs so jot that down Oh my God. Thanks, Letterboxd. (laughs) I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.